Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. And I'd like to welcome everyone watching on our YouTube uh, live stream, and I invite you as well at this time to uh, gather around with your children and, and pray over them uh, as you're watching from home. And uh, Shane, can I ask you to pray for our children? Let me give you the microphone. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for these wonderful, beautiful children that you have blessed us with. And we pray for them that you would make them wise and obedient and understanding. We pray that you would raise them up to be mighty warriors for your kingdom. That you would fill them with your spirit. That you would lead them, guide them, direct them each and every day of their lives. And this we ask in the name of your dear Son and our King, Messiah Yeshua. Amen. 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 Thank you, Shane. Children who are going to class, you can leave out the side doors. The parents do not need to go with them. The teachers will escort them. And if you're staying here, you can come back back to your seats. Thank you. Could you close that side door? Thank you. All right, are we all set in the back? Okay. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, as you know, if you've been following us, we've been in a series on the fruits of the Spirit. And today is part nine. And we've looked so far at love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. Today, I'd like us to look at faithfulness. Uh, which has to do in, in large part with honesty and integrity uh, and, and keeping promises. And to get at this theme, we're going to look at a passage today from Ephesians 4. So turn with me and on the overhead as well from Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 14. Ephesians 4, 14. We're going to skip down to end up at verse 29, but not, not read every verse. And Paul says, Then we'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there uh, by every wind of doctrine. And by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up in him who's the head, that is, Messiah. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood uh, and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we're all members of one body. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Amen. As you know, uh, Galatians 5, 23 lists the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, these are characteristics, these are descriptors of a supernaturally changed heart. Today we come to faithfulness, 
Uh, and the word faithfulness includes honesty and integrity, promise-keeping, truthfulness. And this text here in Ephesians 4 speaks to this issue. And in the midst, midst by the way, of this whole election season we've, we've been in and are still in, <laughs> and all the extensive accusations of fraud uh, and cheating and dishonesty, there could not be today a more relevant topic than truthfulness and integrity, yes? <laughs> Indeed, uh, the polls uh, show that the average American's trust in our nation's institutions, government, the intelligence community, um, election integrity, even the FBI, uh, plus, of course, our news media, uh, our social media tech giants, our trust of them is at an all-time low. Why? Why is that? Because there's a profound sense that there has been a massive failure of integrity at all levels of government and news media uh, and the corporations that control and censor our social media. So what does the Word of God say about honesty and integrity, truthfulness and faithfulness? This text in Ephesians 4 shows us there are two problems with regard to truth. There's a problem of practicing truthfulness, but there's also a problem of abusing people with the truth. So let's look at this. Three headings here on the overhead for today's text. Number one, the problem of practicing truth. Number two, the problem of abusing people by or with the truth. Uh, And number three, how we can solve both problems. So number one, the problem of practicing the truth. This passage mentions three very important aspects uh, of being truthful people. What does it mean to be truthful Uh, on the overhead? uh, First, it simply means to refuse to deceive people. Ephesians 4.15 says this, instead, speak the truth. Uh, instead of what? Well, the prior verse, Ephesians 4.14 says this, the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Now, this is important because most people view lying as simply conveying inaccurate statements. But the Bible long ago recognized the power of words uh, and that every word can also be a deed. Uh, that is, our words are designed not only to convey information, but also to get something done. Our words have an intention, a purpose. And in order to evaluate a word or phrase, you need not only to evaluate whether or not it's conveying accurate information, but also evaluate what is its purpose. Why are we saying this? So say, for example, there's been a theft at the office. And you know that Mr. A did it. But you want to protect it. You want to cover for Mr. A. So the investigators come, and you don't want to lie to them. And they ask you, who did it? What did you see? And you say, I saw Mr. B there that very night. Is that a lie? Well, technically, you're saying what happened? Because it turns out that Mr. B was there that night. You did see Mr. B there that night. But what was the purpose of your statement? It's, it, it was misdirection. Uh, uh, it's to hide. It's to deceive. You're throwing them a red herring. Therefore, according to the Bible, what is, an, what is an untruthful word on the overhead? An untruthful word is any word that deliberately tries to hide reality from the listener. When someone asks you a question, if you lie to them, that means you're deliberately withholding reality, uh, as you know it to be, uh, from them. 
It's called the overhead. And therefore, if you're deceiving, next slide, uh, whether or not what you say is technically true, uh, you're lying. Okay, the overhead here is not working well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you, and, and, and even though you know it's technically true, uh, it's a lie, you know it's wrong. And this expands our concept uh, of truthful speech according to the word of God. So, so here's a list uh, of these kind of deceptive lies. Uh, polite lies, uh, euphemisms, exaggerations, word inflation, benevolent lies. But they're all lies. So here's, uh, here's some examples. Here's a polite lie. I'd love to go, but I'm going to be out of town. But you won't be out of town. <laughs> uh, here's a euphemism. I think you're writing it's too sophisticated for our readers. But what you mean is it's no good. <laughs> but you don't want to upset them, so, so you lie. An exaggeration. When you say to your spouse, you always, or you never... When, of course, that's not true, because your spouse sometimes does. Your spouse sometimes doesn't. But you're exaggerating by saying always or never. And even if it's pretty much true, you're bludgeoning them. <laughs> and because you're exaggerating, your spouse is going to be resentful uh, and, and defensive uh, and reject what you say, even if it's 90% right. But by exaggerating, you're, you're inflaming things. Here's one, a word inflation. When you say... Every single church or synagogue service I've ever, ever, ever been to, you say, it was such a, 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 a tremendous blessing. Uh, it was the best service ever. Uh, the anointing of the Lord was, was there all over the place. It was incredible. Now, of course, sometimes the Lord is there in a powerful way. And sometimes it is a blessing. And sometimes it is incredible. But when you say every service you've ever attended anywhere, it's always a tremendous blessing. It's always incredible. You're just creating cynicism. And people will discount what you say, especially your family and your friends. Uh, because they'll see it as hyperbole uh, and word inflation and hype. Uh, which at bottom is actually a form of being deceptive. It's just not reality. Oh, how's a, here's a benevolent lie. One form is, is the enabling lie, when you lie for an incompetent friend to help him or her cover up their incompetency. Then there are what I call the Martha Stewart lies. Well, the little, the little people, just, they just wouldn't understand. <laughs> it's too complex for them, so, so I'll say this instead. These are all examples of, of deception. Uh, to live, so on the overhead, to live a life of truthfulness means to refuse to deceive. That's the first aspect of, of, of practicing the truth, uh, of being faithful. The second aspect of practicing the truth, of being faithful, is to, to live a life of truthfulness, uh, according to the Bible, is to make and to keep promises. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for all members of one body. Now, of course, we should speak truthfully to everybody. Uh, but this verse here emphasizes speaking truthfully to your neighbor. Uh, and then it clarifies who it's referring to by then saying, for members of one body. So here Paul's talking about believer to believer. And that means, and that phrase, members of one, members of one body, that is covenant imagery. A covenant image. A covenant is a sacred agreement, uh, a binding promise. It's a commitment you publicly enter into uh, uh, by signing a contract or making a vow. And here we're told that Yeshua followers are people who aren't afraid of and who make and who keep promises.
In contrast, we live in a culture today where, where there's so much emphasis uh, on personal freedom uh, and keeping all your options open that people no longer make promises at the places they used to. Uh, and if they do make them, they feel, feel, they feel free to break them as soon as it entails any kind of self-denial at all. Let me give you two uh, prominent examples where people used to make promises but no longer do. The first is living together uh, without being married. And the second is being involved in a congregation for years and years and years, but refusing to join. In both cases, people are not making the promises that in generations past, they always used to make. You know, 40, 50 years ago, neither of these two things happened very often. And the reason they didn't happen very much was because the idea of making a promise and nailing it down and committing yourself and shutting down your options was considered normal and right. Versus today where it's considered abnormal uh, and weird uh, and constraining my personal independence and freedom. And this hyper-individualistic and independent and rebellious spirit just permeates our society today. And the lie of the enemy is that if I make promises and commitments uh, and stick to them uh, and keep them, that somehow I'll be losing my freedom. But that's not true at all. It's a lie. Lewis Smedes, in his great book called Mere Morality, it's a commentary on the Ten Commandments, uh, he talks about this issue uh, of, of, of keeping promises, making commitments, taking vows. And in this quote, uh, put in the overhead, uh, he's speaking especially of the marriage vow, uh, but it's really true of all vows and, and promises and commitments. And he says this, when we make a promise, we take it upon ourselves to create a future with someone else no matter what fate or destiny may have in store. This is almost the ultimate freedom. When I make a promise, I bear witness that my future is not determined by the hand I was dealt out of my family's genetic deck. When I make a promise, I testify that I was not routed along some inexorable itinerary by the psychic condition visited upon me by my slightly wacky parents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am not fated. I am not predetermined. Uh, I'm not a, a lump of human dough whipped into shape by the contingent reinforcement uh, and adverse conditioning of my past. Now I know as well as the next person, he says, that much of what I am and what I do uh, is a gift or a curse from my past. But when I make a promise to anyone, I rise above all the conditioning that limits me. No German shepherd ever promised to be there with me. No computer ever promised to be loyal for life. Only a person can make a promise. And when he does, he is most free. Ah, awesome. You see, uh, when you say, you know, when you say, if I make that promise, if I make this commitment, if I promise to be there, you know, in sickness and health, uh, for richer or poor, uh, for better or for worse. If I make that vow, you say, and if you say, oh, then I won't have my freedom. If you say this, Louis Smeads here, he's pointing out, actually, the very opposite is true. Don't you realize that if you don't make a promise, if you refuse to make a promise, uh, then, you, then you're a slave to your circumstances. You're a slave to your feelings. You're a slave to fears. You're a slave to impulses. Make a promise, which is your way of saying, this is the way I'm going to be, and I don't care what happens. And this is what actually makes you free. 
And to be a people of integrity and faithfulness, we should be people who are not afraid of making and keeping promises. So on the overhead, three aspects of being truthful. Number one, refusing to deceive. Number two, making and keeping promises. Number three, I'm going to call this integrity of selves. Look at verse 25 again, Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Literally, the Greek says you must put off the pseudo. And this is what Paul's talking about. Think of the word integrity. It's related to our word uh, integer. What is an integer? Uh, it's a whole number, right? Uh, it's not a fraction. It's something It's not divided. Uh, it's a whole number. Now, on the overhead, what is integrity? A person of integrity has the same self in every place. You don't have a pseudo self uh, and a real self. So, for example, a person who lacks integrity, you're one way in private and another way in public. Uh, that's why, for example, politicians, you know, they get caught on these uh, hot microphones when they don't know that the, the microphone's live and it's on. Why? Because they're one way in private when they don't think anyone's listening <laughs> and one way in public. Without integrity, you're also one way with this group uh, and one way with that group. What you say you believe is totally different with this group versus that group. But a person of integrity is the same in private as in public. The same with this group uh, and with that group. You're the same of what you think and what you say. And you're the same with what you say and what you do. And you do not have multiple selves. You don't have a real self and then a bunch of pseudo-selves. You've got one self. One real self. Uh, and boy, is that lacking today. And so uh, our, our relativistic culture today actually encourages us to create different selves. Uh, what do you think all these anonymous internet and social media usernames are all about? We create multiple different selves. Uh, we're encouraged to do so. Here's an example of how devastating this is in, in just one area. I'm going to pick this example of the business world. And this is from a website I got on business integrity. Uh, so number one, don't say publicly we're for quality in our business, but privately you've got all these unreasonable deadlines that compromise quality. And all your employees know it. Number two, don't take friends to the company box seats when everyone knows you should only be allowed, to, you're only allowed to bring clients. Number three, don't say publicly everything's fine when all your employees know the company's in big trouble. Number four, don't say we're for equality when you give huge perks only to the management and nobody else. Number five, don't put in a huge number of orders at the end of the quarter because even though you know they'll all be canceled, it'll look good in the quarter end figures and we'll earn you a bonus. <laughs> and these are just a few examples of today of standard business practices. In our culture, we just swim in it. We're like a fish in water for how we routinely live lives of deception uh, and half-truth and falsehood. Don't ask a fish what is water. Because he'll say, well, he don't ask him about water, because he'll say, what's water? <laughs> a fish's environment is the water, so he doesn't even recognize it. And the same with our culture, with its lack of integrity and honesty. Indeed, most people in government and the deep state and big tech and the news media and social media companies, they don't even know what integrity is because they're so used to spinning everything and equating propaganda with news and fact with opinion. 
And when all else fails, they simply censor and cancel you. And because they're swimming in this alternative woke world, they no longer know what integrity is. Uh, And all through this passage in Ephesians, the reason why we should be truthful always comes back to God. We should be righteous and truthful and holy because God is righteous and truthful and holy. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's a place where Yeshua talks about oaths. Look at Matthew 5.34. He says, don't swear an oath, uh, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Yerushalayim, for it's the city of the great king. Uh, don't swear by your head, for you can't make one hair black or white. But your yes be yes, and your no be no. And here's what Yeshua was talking about. You know, in those days, it was understood that if you swore by God, by, by the name of God, then, then you could never break your oath. Uh, they took this from the third commandment, uh, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord God in vain, which they understood to mean you couldn't swear by his name and then not follow through. That would be taking his name in vain, uh, making it of no account. So if you invoke the name of God, you better follow through with that oath. But they said, if you swear by something else, if you swear on your father's grave, or you swear on the city of Jerusalem, or you swear on your own head, well, well, that's different. If you make a promise like that, they say it's not so bad if you break it. But Yeshua here says, do not, don't dare believe that. He says, don't you understand? Yerushalayim, it's God's city. Your head, your head is God's. God made your head. <laughs> your father's grave is God's. Yeshua says, don't you realize that uh, every yes and every no, everything you say, every day, every idle word is under oath. In uh, as much as under oath, uh, it's, it's much under oath as, as if you were swearing in front of God himself. Because guess what? You are standing in his presence. You're standing before the throne of the great king. And therefore, uh, there's no levels of truthfulness. Everything you say is actually under oath. Now, for example, let me say, let's say I told you tomorrow that someone is going to follow you around all day uh, with a videotape uh, and a camera and record everything you say and everything you do. Would you speak with more integrity? Would you be more careful how you spoke to your spouse or your kids or to your parents? Uh, or your friends, uh, or your boss, uh, or your business, uh, or client contacts and customers? Would you be the more, uh, would you be all the more careful if you knew that your words were being recorded and tomorrow it was going to be posted on the internet? Let's be honest. You would, and I would. <laughs> but if we're believers, we are fools for having that attitude. Because it's, it's true that we'd be more careful. And yet Yeshua says, don't you realize you're under way more scrutiny than that internet video? Every one of your words is being held to far greater accountability than than a few thousand people watching it on the internet. Because God himself, the God of the universe, the God of truth, the God of righteousness, the God of holiness, you're standing right before him. So you see, number one, on the overhead, number one, the problem and the difficulty of practicing the truth in these three ways. But that's not the only problem that, that Paul brings out here. It's not only not the only problem with regard to the truth. There's also a second problem discussed in this passage. Number two, it's a problem of then abusing people with the truth. Paul hints at it here in Ephesians 4.15, uh, where, where he says, 
Instead, speak the truth in love. Note that he doesn't just say speak the truth, but he says speak the truth in love. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean, you know, be truthful but then add love to it? No. So so truth is one thing and and love is another? No, that's that's not the point. That's not what he's saying. Verse 29, Ephesians 4, 29 fleshes this out. Paul says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The word unwholesome here literally means rotten. It means putrefying. It means leading to decay and disintegration. So in the overhead, what's an unwholesome word? An unwholesome word is anything not designed to build up, not designed uh, to benefit. Does that mean that true words that aren't designed uh, to build up or benefit, that even these true words are rotten? And the answer is yes. That's exactly what Paul is saying. You know, by the way, the rabbis later picked up on this with their whole concept of Lashan Hara, uh, the evil tongue. Uh, where even if something is true, it can still be evil and sinful to say it. But by the way, they got this from Paul. Paul said it first. <laughs> so, so what are unwholesome words? I'm reminded of this place in Shakespeare's Henry V, where the English army, they've invaded France. King Henry V of England, he, he, he actually, he hangs one of his soldiers for pillaging. And then, he, then King Henry says to his men, he says this, he says, I will not have the French abraded nor abused in disdainful language. Yes, we're here to conquer them, but we're not here to speak disdainfully to them. We're not, here, not going to abrade them. Now, Paul here in Ephesians 4 isn't just talking about abusive language or, or harsh tones. He certainly is saying that as well. If you say uh, the, tru- the truth in an abusive, angry, harsh way, yes, that, that's, that's rotten, that's unwholesome, that, that stinks, uh, it's wrong, it's sinful. Uh, but I'm telling the truth. Doesn't matter. And here's why. When you tell the truth in abusive ways, when you beat people up with the truth, are you really caring about the truth? Are you really valiant for the truth? No. You're valiant for yourself. But Paul's not just talking about overtly abusive words. Uh, he's saying anything that's, act- that's not actually designed to benefit and to build up is unwholesome. So look again at Ephesians 4.29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. When you speak the truth to someone, uh, your goal uh, is your goal really to attack them, uh, to marginalize them in the eyes of others. Uh, are you trying to punish them? Are you trying to put them in their place? Uh, or are you trying also to, to get applause from others? Paul says none of these motives are right. On the overhead, anyone who uses the truth uh, to beat the person up in order to get more power or status for yourself, you're abusing the truth. And you're not valiant for the truth. Uh, you're valiant for yourself. Uh, you're using the truth for your own power and status. And now we're coming to the, one of the main objections the world has against the body of Messiah. Uh, these philosophers, uh, Nietzsche uh, and Foucault, uh, other philosophers have said for years that when believers claim to have the truth, they're really just using the truth to get on top. So, for example, the French philosopher, uh, Michel, uh, Michel Foucault, he says this on the overhead. He says, truth is a thing of this world. It's produced by virtue of, of multiple forms of constraint, and it induces regular effects of power, 
Each society has its regime of truth. So basically he says, truth claims are power plays. Now, what should we as Yeshua followers do when we hear something like that? Should we get defensive? No. Instead, we should repent. And here's why. Long before Foucault and Nietzsche and Marx, for all of them, Yeshua said this. Matthew 23, verse 6. Woe to you, Torah teachers and Pharisees. If you love the places of honor at the banquets, the most important seats in the synagogues, and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace, woe to you. If you tie up heavy burdens and loads, put them on others' shoulders, but you yourselves aren't willing to lift a finger to help move them. What's he saying? He's talking about people who use the law of God, the truth, the Bible, to get the right places in society, the high status, to keep people down. That's exactly what Foucault and Nietzsche are talking about. Uh, Yeshua himself uses the gospel here to dismantle how people misuse uh, the truth to abuse people and keep them down and lift themselves up. And this is why many non-believers don't like Christianity uh, or Messianic Judaism. This is what they complain about. But if you get your sense of worth and value out of the free grace of God, if the reason you know you're worth anything is just the free grace and love of God, then the truth of God becomes a way of simply delighting in Him. It's something you love. So if you get your sense of value from God, you love the truth. But if you get your sense of value from being right, if you get your sense of value and worth from having the truth, uh, and being accurate and always being right and being valiant for the truth, instead of grounding your value and your worth in who you are in Yeshua, if you're looking to the truth to give you, but only Yeshua can give you, then you're abusing and misusing the truth to lift yourself up and to put others down. You're abusing and misusing the truth to make yourself look good and to lord it over others. And then you are just a modern-day Pharisee. And now that Yeshua reserved his harshest critique, not for the blatant sinners and prostitutes, but for those self-righteous Pharisees. So we, as Yeshua followers, are standing on a very narrow piece of ground. Because on the one side, we've got the moral uh, relativists who proclaim, who's to say what truth is? What is truth? You have your truth, I have mine. Everyone has to decide what's truth for themselves. Uh, And they either deny the fact that there are any absolute objective truths, or they play fast and loose with the truth. Those are the moral relativists. And on the other side, you have these who say, yes, there is a truth, uh, and here it is, and they beat you up with it. But Yeshua and Paul and the Bible say both these approaches are rotten. And if you're a person of integrity, you don't do either one. And moreover, someone who uses the truth to beat people up, as I said, they're not really valiant for the truth. You're valiant for yourself, and people see it and know it. So there are two problems. The problem of being truthful and also the problem of not abusing people with the truth. So on the one hand, we're afraid to say, we're afraid of being truthful uh, when it's to our own detriment. It's hard for us to tell the truth all the time and keep our promises and always be honest and faithful and act with integrity. We're afraid to tell the truth in various circumstances. And therefore, we want to spin. 
uh, and filter the facts and promote or, or protect ourselves. Uh, uh, and that's often why we lie or exaggerate or, or tell half-truths. We lie typically because we're afraid. But on the other hand, you, well, you also have pride, which we use then to beat people up with the truth. As one famous preacher once said, we're like a drunk man, having fallen off the horse on one side, promptly gets up and falls off the horse on the other side. <laughs> and now we're stuck between these two cultures. These two cultures. On the one hand, we today live in a relativistic culture. Our prevailing culture uh, in the media, uh, in academia, uh, in the arts, Hollywood, public schools, universities, government, social media, they all say, what is truth? Who's to really say uh, what's right or what's wrong? All truth and ethics and morality is culturally relative. And so our society today, it tells kids, there is no objective truth. There's no absolute right or wrong. You have to decide for yourself. But then they get upset uh, when they get out into society and they lie and they cheat and they deceive and they break promises on the overhead. C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man, he puts it like this. We clamor for the very qualities we're rendering impossible. We laugh at honor and then are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and build the geldings be fruitful. Do you hear what he's saying? We tell kids that all truth and morality is culturally relative. Who's to say what's truth? But then we get upset at all the corruption and the cheating and the dishonesty in our schools and government and business and society. As C.S. Lewis says, we clamor for the very qualities we're rendering impossible. We say truth is relative, but why aren't you honest? (laughs) And we don't even see the irony of our statement. We laugh in honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate them and then nonetheless build the, gel- build the geldings to be fruitful. We tell children in school uh, that truth and morality is relative. And we wonder they, well, when they grow up, they have no virtue or honor or integrity or faithfulness. So on the one hand, we're living in this amoral, secular, relativistic society. But on the other hand, the danger then is to overreact to the other extreme and to become Pharisees uh, and scolds uh, and people who use unwholesome words. We become people who, who use the truth not to build up and not to benefit, but to tear others down, make ourselves look good, uh, feel morally and spiritually superior. We attack not the problem, but the person. And that's wrong. So we have, on the one hand, we have the truth party. We have the truth and nobody else. Uh, and then we have the love party. We just love and accept everything and everybody. But here's the problem on the overhead. Truth without love is not really truth. It's a power grab. And love without truth isn't really love. Uh, it's cowardice or, or intellectual laziness. And ironically, both are ultimately all about the self. Both extremes are really all about you. You wanting to be right. Uh, or, or you wanting to be accepted. Truth and love must be together, uh, or they're not themselves. That's what Paul's saying here. Truth without love isn't truth, uh, and love without truth isn't love. Unless they're joined together, they are not authentic on the overhead. They're not the real thing. So number three, that finally, what's the solution? Here's the solution. John 18, there's actually two different trials of Yeshua. First, Yeshua is dragged before Caiaphas, the high priest. Then he's taken to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, when he's dragged before the high priest, do you know what he says? He says, 
I testify to the truth. And they smack him. Then he goes before Pilate. Yeshua says almost the exact same thing. Look at John 18, 37. I testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. How does Pilate respond? John 18, 38. What is truth? Pilate retorts. And then they kill him. Now, I want you to behold the wonder of this. First, I want you to behold the wonder of the integrity of Yeshua. Notice he's the same before both Caiaphas and Pilate. Before both the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman authorities. There's nothing pseudo and nothing false about Yeshua. He doesn't cater to the audience. He's not trying to curry favor with them. He's the same in one place and the other. So here are the moralists. Here are the religious leaders that he's been denouncing. He says to the Pharisees, I testify to the truth. And then here's the relativists who say, what is truth? And Yeshua says the same thing as he told the religious leaders. He says, I testify to the truth. He's not two different kinds of people. And notice this. He's not only the same in both places, but they both hate him. They both smack him. They both want to kill him. Why? And the overhead. Because the relativists and the moralists are both all ultimately about power. The reason the relativists, like Pilate, say, who's to say what the truth is? Is to get power. And the reason the moralists, like the Pharisees, say, I have the truth, is to get power. But Yeshua is the exact opposite. He's standing on his integrity. His absolute integrity. Uh, uh, he, he says to, an overhead, to both the Pharisees and to the Romans, I testify to the truth. He says the same thing to both sides. And it gets him killed. Why? Because he's using the truth, not for his own self, but to serve us. Whereas they're using the truth to get power over us. Yeshua's integrity takes him to the cross. But why is he willing to go to the cross? And here's the solution to the problem of both of faithfulness and integrity. Here's the problem, the solution to the problem we've been looking at. So let me ask you a question. Did Yeshua go to the cross for the truth? Is that why he went? To show us that God's law cannot be broken. To show that God's holiness and his righteousness must be satisfied. Did Yeshua go to the cross for the sake of truth? Or did he go to the cross for the sake of love? So that we could be pardoned. So that we could be forgiven in spite of our sins. So that we could be embraced and accepted by the Lord. On the overhead, did Yeshua go to the cross for truth or for love? And the answer is yes. (laughs) The moment he died, the truth of God was infinitely satisfied. Because Yeshua fulfilled all the requirements of the law of God on the overhead. But also the moment he died, the love of God was infinitely satisfied. Because by taking on our sin and enduring the punishment they deserved, uh, the holiness and the righteousness of God is now satisfied. So now the Lord can receive you uh, and embrace you and pardon you and forgive you in spite of your sin. The cross brought brought truth and love together. On the cross, they kiss. Often in our world and in our lives, truth and love, they're opposed to one another. We say, if I tell the truth, I don't know if that's loving. Uh, so, so they seem to be at loggerheads. But on the cross, on the tree, they are not. And when the cross comes into the center of your life, they won't be either. You know why? Because the cross keeps you from the fear that causes you to play fast and loose with the truth. 
Because Yeshua loved you so much that he died for you. But the cross also keeps you from the pride that makes you the kind of person who abuses the truth. Because Yeshua had to die for you because you were that sinful and utterly lost without him. And that realization keeps you humble. So the, the pride that leads you to abuse people is taken away by the cross. And the fear that leads you to water down the truth is also taken away by the cross. And through, and through embracing the gospel and submitting to Yeshua, our hearts are now filled with love. And now here's what we can do. Ephesians 4.29 Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up that it may benefit those who listen. I know the English translation say that it may benefit those who listen. That's not actually what the Greek says. The literal Greek says you should only say that which will give grace to those who listen. When you get the grace from the cross of Yeshua the Messiah, then you can speak the truth graciously. And only then. Let me close with this. You know, in the beginning of history, it was a disaster, right? Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, sin, the serpent, the fall, which ushers in death and destruction, evil. Everything's horrible. Except one glimmer of hope, uh, the promise. Genesis 3.15, God says, I'll put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your seed and hers, he, he will crush your head, the head of the serpent, and you'll bruise his heel. God said, I promise one descendant of Eve will one day crush the head of the serpent and destroy evil. I promise. And then centuries later, God says to Abraham, I'm going to save the world through your descendants. I'm going to save the world through the Jewish people. And Abraham says, how can I be sure? I'm old. I'm childless. And in Genesis 15, God shocks Abraham when he appears as a smoking oven and a blazing torch. And he passes through the pieces of a dead animal. Uh, and through this ceremony, he's basically saying, I'm going to save the world through one of your descendants, Abraham, even if it means I have to die. And that's the second promise. And then centuries later, Yeshua comes into the world. He's a man of complete integrity, total integrity, always means what he says, always says what he means, absolute integrity and faithfulness. But in the very end, in the ultimate act of integrity, he sets his face like a flint to Jerusalem, and he goes to the tree, to the cross. Why? He's fulfilling these promises. He's fulfilling the promise of God. And everything now is now before him. Everything comes down against him. Everything opposes him. Hell itself comes down on him. And he says, nonetheless, I will not be moved. I made a promise and I will fulfill it. And he goes to the cross and endures hell itself. And he dies for you and for me. You've been saved by the integrity of Yeshua. You've been saved by the promise keeping of Yeshua the Messiah. And that should humble you from ever using the truth against people like a Pharisee. And on the other hand, it should also uh, uh, convince you that there is indeed a truth. So you cannot be a relativist. And the cross des destroys our fear of telling the truth. That's Chaim. Look at the integrity and faithfulness of Yeshua. Look at what he did for you. And become yourselves people of the fruit of the spirit of integrity and faithfulness. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Let the music team to come up. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father.
Father, help us be truthful people. Help us today to not deceive or misdirect or, or tell half-truths or to spin or to, or to hide reality from other people. Lord, help me to keep my promises, to be a promise keeper, to be a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. Help me to be a man or a woman of integrity. The same in every place, in every circumstance. The same in public as in private. Uh, the same with group A as with group B. Uh, the same with my shul friends and with my non-shul friends. Let me say what I think and do what I say. Integrity. Let my words not be used, Lord, to put other people down or to gain power over them or, or to puff me up or to make me look good. Let me speak no Lashon Hara, no unwholesome word, even if it's technically true, rather than every word I'd say be designed to build people up according to their needs to benefit them. Let my words help them not be all about me. Lord, help me to be neither a relativist who denies the truth, nor a moralist, a Pharisee who uses the truth in my pride to gain status over others. But rather, Lord, help me to look to you, Yeshua, and the cross, where truth and love unite, uh, where they kiss. Help me, Yeshua, to be more, to more fully embrace your gospel, so that your perfect love casts out fear. Uh, and I won't be afraid to speak the truth. But let me, but let the realization, Lord, also of my utter sinfulness and my need for your gospel also cast out all my pride. So I won't misuse or abuse the truth to put other people down or to lift myself up. But rather, Lord, let my words speak grace. Yeshua, your grace to all who hear. For I pray this in your name, Bashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.